Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHH FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, we have one of my favorite guests back in the studio today. Benita Grubbs has been making New Haven tick for 35 years as the executive director of Christian Community Action, fair to say our leading advocacy and service combined group for people facing the challenges of poverty in New Haven. She's been at the forefront, even though she doesn't put herself there, of all, all the major efforts to, to address the underlying challenges facing families wrestling with poverty in New Haven. Benita Grubbs, th- welcome back to WNHH-FM. Oh, thank you for the invitation. And as Harry predicted, I'm going to ask you to get really close to the mic, maybe push it closer to you. So, uh, Reverend Grubbs, uh, anything new? Anything going on new? I don't know. What do you think? Any news with Reverend Grubbs? Well, I can share information about my retirement as executive director of Christian Community Action after 35 years. And uh, and to add one little piece to this, one of the former board members s- said that uh, I would be at CCA for five years. There's either mm. something that the matter with my math <laughs> I can relate. Or, or that the Ministry of Christian Community Action is that to which I've been called. Well, so the news is that uh, the beloved Reverend Nita Grubbs, who has been helming Christian Community Action for 35 years, is retiring mm-hmm. as of Friday, December 1st. That's correct. And it sounds to me that that was not a um, casually chosen date because it was December 1st. 1988 when you took over the agency that's correct so how do you feel about retiring well well, there's a certain amount of sadness because it means that it's the end of the ministry to which i have been called um but also uh, a degree of satisfaction for the work that not just i offered um, but the services that cca staff members provided so you use the word ministry reverend grubbs that you see the work you do there as a ministry. So, you know, day to day, whether it's finding families with food, a place to live, training for jobs, training to advocate for themselves, to make government programs work better. By calling it a ministry, it has a spiritual connection to it. Oh, absolutely. Which is an age old ministry, right? Going back to Jesus in the Bible, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How does one approach a ministry like that, knowing that when your work is done, there's still going to be poverty. Like in other words, people are they're still poor. All the work you've done, you've helped so many families wrestle with poverty, get out of poverty, change the system so that other people have an easier time getting food and shelter and a livelihood. And yet when you leave, you're going to see all this work that remains to be done. Well, there's a verse of scripture that I'll quote in part. It says, the poor, that, the poor you will have with you always. And my response to that is, that yes, if that's the case, then there need to be structures put in place for there to be a pathway out of poverty into whether it's prosperity or self-sufficiency, economic security, personal improvement, independence. That's obviously what you do all day at Christian Community Action, which is based on Davenport Avenue, has a major presence in Westshire Avenue. So back on December 1988, when you started this mission 35 years ago, we knew about Christian Community Action it was a uh, both advocacy and service organization. I remember that your predecessor covering him, Reverend Carl Hilgert, really nice guy. Mm-hmm. I thought he really cared. I remember he was doing his way of calling attention to an issue as he did a hunger strike. That's correct. 
And I'm trying to remember, what was that for? Is that for rules about welfare to change? Or do you remember what that was about housing? Yeah, I think it was really about um, poverty and changing rules so that people could get the services that they needed, not necessarily around housing, but, but really saying that there's some unmet needs in people. Really and I'm embarrassed because I wrote about it. I don't remember the specific ask, but I do remember how concerned I was about his health. So I said, you're not going to eat for all these days. And the first thing he told me was, I'm drinking juice. So that's the first thing I learned that juice is part of it. Because, you know, when we fast in Jewish tradition, you can't have any water, you know. And then he told me afterwards, I said, you know, Carl, you're looking kind of thinner. He said, actually, I was really, this came at a good time because I wanted to lose 15 pounds. But what I think about it, Benita, is that you had a different style. And I did think the world of Reverend Hilger. I think he did good work. You never, the way you've brought attention to issues, it seems like you've, from day one, been pushing other people out front. Is that accurate? Um, I would say that that is indeed the case. Like you book. never did a hunger strike. You oh, no. No, that was not part of my plan. Um, I honor Carl and honored Carl. Sure, I'm not criticizing. For, for the way that he engaged in activism. What I decided to do was to turn the activism into whether it was a policy orientation or programming that really said, here are ways in which uh, families and individuals in need can have a greater independence, a greater opportunity to be able to survive and thrive. What was the original plan they hired you for? What is it? Chris Kimiakis, if I remember correctly, was after the Hill riots in the 60s, members involved in suburban churches said, we want to help address poverty in the hill yeah there were a number of uh, meetings that took place that's obviously before my time urban suburban dialogues about you know poverty and the riots and and people were really wondering about what they could do as a matter of faith to have an impact to have conversations to be in the space of that and uh, one of the persons who was involved in that was a gentleman who was also deceased by the day by the name of david nearing was really the founding director and when you came, you were someone, how, how long were you out of seminary? Oh, goodness, probably, let's see, 19, I can't, 93? No, it wasn't 93. It was in the 80s. I don't remember now when I graduated. That's but you, you, you came to accept a ministry that wasn't running a church. It wasn't giving a sermon on Sundays. It wasn't building up membership and having prayer rituals. It was a ministry that was involving getting people help and helping them advocate for themselves. What figure in your mind was that always your intention when you went to um seminary what becoming a minister is that what you thought a minister was in terms of how you saw your role did you think one day you'd be leading a church no that's the short answer but i didn't know that at the time i think what i would say is that i heard a voice um sort of reflection reflective voice that says you are going to yield to get your master's in public health (laughs) and and i'm like okay so i'm trying to determine what god is calling me to do and let me apply, and we'll see what happens. I was able to get accepted into the School of Public Health, and then I thought that there was a theological background that I needed because it really was a matter of faith that uh, led me to, into the space of um, wanting <laughs> even to consider the, the, the degree program at the School of Public Health. And I went up to the Yale Divinity School and uh, made an application, got in, and as a result, I got a Master of Arts in Religion. And did you think you were going to go into leading a congregation or what was the goal um i i remember my pastor mentor who happened to be um, an individual was a friend a colleague of reverend dr martin luther king's and so he inspired me a great deal 
and studying and reflecting and really discerning what it is that uh, my next steps would be. And so he said to once during my ordination council, she don't know what she wants to do in just those words. And I said, that's true. So my, my thinking was, God will lead me in the direction that I should go. God will lead me in the direction that I've been called to go. And I applied for a position at Christian Community Action. One of the persons who was involved at CCA at the time was a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Shaw. And she was working with I Carl. remember her. Yeah. yeah, she was working with Carl. And so we had a conversation, and I submitted an application, and the rest is... And you thought it would be five years, it became your career. Yes. And based out of the hill at First Davenport Avenue, it's still there. Yep. Now, at first, did you have the, uh, the food bank? Oh, yeah. There's always been an emergency focus to the work that we've done at CCA. And then at some point you started emergency housing on that block. That was not when you first got there, correct? Um, it was before I came. So, oh, it was. So the food, the food pantry and other emergency services were there. There was a four, five unit uh, building in which there was emergency housing. There were living dialogues where people were talking about what it was that they should do um, to really address issues of poverty and, and lack of self-sufficiency. Uh, CCA added three uh, units of uh, par- three apartments um, to add to that. And, uh, and then later on, we added 10 units over on Sylvan Avenue. So we have a total of 17 apartments. For and families. are these mostly women with children, single moms? It's a variety. We have had two parent families. We've had male heads of household. We've had two female heads of household. It but it's women with kids, parents and kids. Well, they're, they're, Definitely families. So the reason I brought up when you the, covering you is that you. I remember you inviting me there pretty early on and saying, I want you to meet the people who live there and I want you to talk to them because we're starting Mothers for Justice. Mm-hmm. That in addition to giving people a place to have a roof over their head, meals if they need it, we want them to advocate for better rules. And if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken in memory, it's like they're not going to be penalized from welfare if they start working so that you know, it can be work from them. They're going to get help with transportation or childcare. And you asked me to meet with them to give them tips on how to advocate. And it wasn't about Benita Grubbs. And then you would hold press conferences where they were the people at the mic. What was the thinking there Well, that strategy? Well, number one, it was an opportunity mm-hmm. to use their voice, to share their story, to allow for individuals to hear that heart-to-heart kind of talk about what what was lacking in their lives and and my feeling further was that the more that individuals spoke the more of a narrative they would have and the more powerful their voice would be and it's true and i remember people can you think of people you work with from those days you see their lives turn around as part of that process oh yes tell me about one of them well one one person in particular i won't give the whole story but was a part of the group and um, and was able to get employed and was able to take care of her children and you know the, the kinds of things that she was able to do to succeed. I remember one woman I met there who we've written about her story. So she was uh, Natasha advocated for herself, got out of Mercy Housing, but actually built a career. I would years That's later correct. interview That's her correct. about That's running correct. a government-funded nonprofit program. I believe it was for maternal health and and and, and child. Mm-hmm. Infant mortality, if I'm not mistaken, and like I really saw the transformation of people. Oh. Now, what always interested me was combining because most agencies, I think, either do direct service; they give you 
housing, clothing, shelter, or they do active policy advocacy. And here you had people in getting the direct service having sessions with state legislators mm-hmm. or with mayors yeah. and public events. And that still happens today. Mothers for Justice is now called Mothers and Others for Justice. Yeah, how did that change? Um, because the, the, the desire of the individuals in the group wanted to be as inclusive as possible because there are a number of individuals who have had certain experiences and making sure that they had the opportunity to use their voice and, and to increase the volume around policy advocacy, you know, changing systems that perpetuate poverty and, ju- and injustice was part of our mission statement. And that's what we were committed to doing. Today, our mission is to offer help, housing, and hope to people in need in New Haven. Officing help. Housing and hope to people. Three H's. All right. And we're talking about that with Benita Grubbs, Reverend Benita Grubbs, who has been sort of an all-star of the nonprofit world for 35 years as the Executive Director of Christian Community Action is retiring at 60. I'm sorry, I won't miss that part. Retiring after 35 years this Friday, December 1st. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked about how it felt. Why did you make the decision to retire? Well, you know, a f- classmate of mine from seminary used to say to me on, on occasion, you know, Grubbs, you're not as young as you used to was. <laughs> and, and dear, dear friend, and he wasn't trying to be accusatory or say anything about my age, but I think there comes a point at which when you feel you've done that all that you could, and I think I have, mm-hmm. um, when you feel as if, not that there isn't any more to do, but there are different individuals who can really take on the task of carrying the organization forward. And, and the energy that you know, I don't have that I had when I was in my 30s. I can relate to that. Um, it, it just made sense to me that this was the best time to make a decision. So you felt it was time for people, younger people with more energy yeah, to carry it forward. Well, and also one of the things that I wanted to do, and thanks to a very kind and most generous donor, we were able to change the program that we operated on Winchester Avenue called Stepping Stone into the New Hope Housing Program. So that opened a couple of years ago, and that was a major accomplishment. Um, and there are 15 families living in uh, on at that look at the location where that program is operating Um, so you felt you were at a point where you had seen some big projects get over the hump yeah yeah. so let's tell people about some of that so new hope um it's on winchester avenue the former um stepping stone program and before that it was the ivy street school that's correct which i love that it was called the people referred to it as the ivory street school did you ever notice that no it's sort of like poplar street in fairhaven is called popular street and it took me long and i realized it was ivy and people still call it that, right? You know, so anyways, right at Winchester there. And uh, it got, you know, it's not a school anymore. And it had a first round with CCA mm-hmm. as stepping stones. That's correct. And that's where you got families who were experiencing homelessness as a transition. They got help getting on their feet. They could live in sort of a more supportive environment that isn't a shelter, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and they up to 36, up to 36 months, was it? It's 24. The current program is 36. Yeah. And then you... There was a reason it had to be reborn, and my understanding was that it had to do with how funding works and how rules change or how the needs change. Why did Stepping Stone stop happening there, and why was and how did you rebirth it as New Hope? So at the federal level, there was the promotion of an ending homelessness agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the program in its naming was really talking more about process than outcome. 
So what we had to do was to determine what was the way that we could really provide people with the opportunity to take steps, to move forward, to make changes, to develop new opportunities for themselves and their children. And so we, were, we, we had a building that we had no use for because we didn't have the funding available to provide the services. But did you change what it do- did, or did you have to just find a way to recast it so they can qualify for continued funding? Not substantively, but the program is called New Hope, and it's Higher Opportunities, Purpose, and Expectations. It is a moving-to-work program. as a partnership with the Housing Authority of New Haven. And we have been at this now for a little bit more than two years. How's it going? It's going well with some challenges, of course, because there's a combination of what the willingness uh, is of the heads of household um, to be able to take the steps forward and trying to turn their life around, a deep commitment to employment and child and family services, because we just know that those We are, are in a good point now with terms of jobs being available, correct? The job market's pretty good now. We're, there's still some challenges because there's some readiness for work skill building and employment yeah and so you know we've got an employment specialist on staff um, who has uh, just come on board actually to be able to support families um, the heads of household in particular to to seek and secure it's interesting to me that you partnered with the housing authority of new haven it seems like we're talking about church Street south or rebuilt conventional uh, housing developments that they're kind of stepping up as the trusted agency in town to partner with people to make affordable housing work and, yeah. and get the money for it. And it's interesting to me because you remember that used to be the problem agency. Yeah. And it, it was on the troubled list, yeah, quote unquote. Certainly. And for that, we are certainly most grateful. We had a meeting with staff from the Housing Authority earlier this week just to talk about the you know, next steps that we want to be able to take with families and the kind of success that we hope for. And they had done other moving to work programs where the people in developments that get them ready for jobs. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a partnership that has been very positive and we want to be able to make sure that it is successful for the families and also the, that, uh, that the housing authority can continue to do projects like that. And I just heard something about another new project at Church Street South that I think that they're going to be launching. So it's an ambitious in- endeavor, but I think it's certainly needed uh, because housing and the cost of housing in particular is just too high. In your years, Reverend Grubbs, at Christian Community Action, have you seen anything change with who is most in need of housing and emergency assistance or what the challenges they face are? Is it pretty much the same as when you got there or have changing times changed the conditions? I, I think... To some extent, changing times, changing times change conditions, but the essential lack of opportunity or the lack of opportunity that individuals have to make the changes um, could be different because the times are different. Here we're talking to Reverend Benita Grubbs, who's finishing her final week of a brief 35-year <laughs> tenure running Christian Community Action New Haven here on Dateline New Haven. Um, so you've played another role all these years in this. Well, first of all, let's talk about activism. So Christian Community Action on Davenport Avenue mm-hmm. is around the corner from where they built the John C. Daniels School. Mm-hmm. And I guess this was now close to 20 years ago, I guess, that mm-hmm. they were going to tear down a bunch of houses to make room for it. And your church became one of the loci of opposition to that. Yeah, the, the church building is one that we own at 158 Davenport Avenue because what we wanted to make sure of is that folks had an opportunity to 
hear each other to plan for what they thought could be a good strategy. um, In the end, some of the houses were saved. Yes. Right around your place. And I remember watching you at that role, and it was so interesting because, again, you didn't really put yourself out there. We or others would ask you questions, but you weren't, make you say the face of it. When you spoke, you never used incendiary language. You, You really felt strongly about it. You felt that working like poor people's homes needed to be preserved there, but you didn't accuse public officials of nefarious motives. You didn't call them names. You didn't raise the temperature really. And I was just wondering if that's a deliberate thing when you think about your approach. You're not a name caller. <laughs> no, I'm not a name caller, but, um, but I remember hearing someone say many years ago, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Mm-hmm. And, and really the stick happened to be the voices of the individuals who had issues and had unmet needs and w- making sure that people could be heard. And sometimes when you do indeed share information at a higher decibel level, people don't want to listen. Right. And, and you know, scripture that I've embraced, uh, I must be all things to all people that I might win some, which means that you change your s- approach, not yourself. Mm-hmm. to make sure that not only you are heard, but you are indeed able to make a difference. So I thought about that last night, because I always thought it was the secret of Benita Grubbs, that even though you're involved in controversial issues, you, there isn't a single person I've ever heard in 35 years question your motives, question your integrity, or even say the slightest negative comment about you, which is really rare for someone who gets engaged in public life on difficult issues. So I know that part of it was always that you didn't make yourself the story. Mm-hmm. But actually, when I was preparing for this, and I actually read a column that made me think about what might be part of the secret of Benita. It was in the Economist magazine. They have oh. a language column by a guy named Johnson. And he, uh, the person was writing about language and euphemism and exaggeration and, and went back to George Orwell's essay, Politics and English Language, and how we used, at that time, the big threat was using language as euphemisms to down grade the severity of an impact of something so calling when millions of peasants are robbed of their farms trudging along roads that's called transfer of population if they're imprisoned for years without trial shot in back in the neck or sent to die in lumber camps that's called elimination of unreliable elements that was the era of stalin and hitler and and, he, and his point was that bureaucracies and in militaries and interview all countries were using language vague language and euphemisms for hard things but that the columnist said that Today, the, the challenge might be what they call dysphemism rather than euphemism, where you overstate. With social media, the pressure is to make things sound, always ramp up everything you're saying and a person you're disagreeing with and a point you're making to make it sound the ultimate worst that it can be and make it sound worse than it is, even if it's already bad. So the points they were using was like um, uh, calling everyone a fascist if you don't agree with them or calling genocide in a situation where there's where you disagree with the bombing of civilizations but it has a real meaning or declosation and that uh and that we're deadening horrific acts in a new way by making everything overstated and it made me think about how precise you are in language and you don't overstate you don't sugarcoat but you don't it seemed to me you're so deliberate not to overstate not to be ad hominem not to ratchet up hysteria about a point to make your point. Is that something you've thought about consciously? Is that something you're seeing as more of a challenge in a social media age, in a politically polarized age? Well, I think there's, a, for me, a question about being heard. And sometimes the louder the volume, 
the less you are heard. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I learned a concept that's called was called at that point uh, normalization or social role valorization, which basically means that you try to speak in a fashion that values the individual, even if you disagree with the individual. You value mm-hmm. the social context so that you can get your point across. But it's really about valuing the folks and and making sure that as much as possible that if there, you can come to an agreement, you can come to an understanding. And and if there isn't an, an agreement, that at least you can just say, okay, this one didn't work. Let me try another approach. I also wonder if it has to do with ego, because sometimes the ramping up of a language is part of a process of calling attention to oneself, as part of a political argument, so rather I, than focusing on the substance of what you want to have changed. Yeah, I learned from the ministerial side that ego is an acronym for edging God out. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, it just means that if you're if you're called to do something, then you want to make sure, and, and if you're a person of faith, that you want to make sure that you operate in a in a manner that is indeed respectful, that indeed honors the individual for the person. That it's not about you; it's about the larger cause or the larger challenge or the larger opportunity, and even the hopefully the larger victory. Can you think of a victory you're proudest of over the 35 years ago? I'm sorry. Can you think of a victory you're proud of over these 35 years? Mm, gee whiz. Well, probably the, the, um, the group that Mothers and Others for Justice, which started, it's now called Mothers and Others for Justice, that started in 1993. The fact that there's been a constant and consistent advocacy, attention to advocacy specifically. And I think just the opportunities that we've tried to offer to individuals and heads of household. So, for example, about five years ago, we started something that's called the Arise Center, um, which is located in our building. That's A-R-I-S-E, Arise, Accessing Resources for Independent Skill Building and Employment. Yeah, because no one, you know, no child grows, no no child becomes an adult quickly. It's a process. No person gets to a point of having a, a job unless there's training. So there's a process by which individuals actually get from point A to point B. So who goes there? It's the same families who are in housing? Some, some in the community, some at our New Hope program, some at the shelter. It, 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 it varies um, in, a, in a huge way, but we have an employment specialist, a director, and a child and family specialist there. Um, and I think that those are the kinds of things that we want to be able to offer to individuals. It's really about a pathway. You know, not just into the food pantry and out of the food pantry, not just receiving energy assistance and leaving after having gotten the funding for energy assistance, but what else is there that uh, we can offer to individuals and leave them better off and create an opportunity for them to be better off. So in addition to this legacy of people who advocate for themselves through Mothers and Others for Justice and other work, and people's lives have changed, you have three institutional anchors, accurate to say, the housing on Davenport the housing and supportive housing and program in Winchester and the uh, Arise Center in Winchester. It's correct. Is there I, more work to do for your successor? Um, I absolutely believe so. Um, I think that the Arise Center um, needs to be established into what I call a social service supermarket. Um, that's not something that uh, that was on the uh, docket right now, but it's something that is really on you the You hope your successor will do. Yeah. I mean, what is a social service supermarket? So uh, I'll, I'll explain it very simply. I have never gone to a grocery store and only gotten the things 
that I went there to get. <laughs> and sometimes I've even forgotten the thing that I went to the supermarket to get. But being exposed to new things, different things, while there creates an opportunity for me to make a purchase. And, and to be able to do that means that you have to have the space in two different spaces to create those opportunities to help people to see what the opportunities are. So right now they get employment training. I'm guessing they get referrals to possible jobs, perhaps childcare, energy assistance. What would be added to make it a supermarket? Well, um, that has not come into view just yet, but I think it's a matter of you know, talking to individuals at the point that they come to our site, seeking emergency assistance and being exposed to whatever else that there is. But basically, it's it's the opportunities that we can afford create for individuals um, to see and to take advantage of. Do we know who's replacing you yet? No. Is there a search process? Uh, it's in process. And is there an interim? Um, no, not not at this moment. Okay. And then do um, you have any plans for your last day to celebrate? Well, Mark been, the transition. That's an important process. I've been trying to clean up my small office for a few weeks now, <laughs> so I'm going to do a final. It never looked that messy to me. Um, it was full. Okay. It was quite full. And, um, <laughs> and one, of the, one of the things that I'm going to take with me is the plaque that my pastor mentor gave me. Uh, at the time that I came to Christian Community Action, I am not going to quote it, but it's been a source of inspiration for me for all. Of Who the was time. that mentor? His name was Earl Lawson. He was from the Boston area originally, and uh, came to came to Hartford actually while I was a it was right out of college, um, and really had um, a very huge influence on me. Um, he is n- no longer alive but his his vision the fact that he was spending the after he retired from ministry uh, walking streets talking to folks who had mental health issues talking to folks who had substance abuse issues and just being present to the individuals as he was called to do is there a day you're never going to forget from being these last 35 years Hmm. well there are many of them to be sure well tell me about one uh let's see if i could come up with one well, I'll give you the most recent one at, at the same location. One is the reopening of the, the, the building at 660 Winchester Avenue. That was huge. It was a very kind and most generous donor who made that possible. And secondly, the fact that there was a kind and c- compassionate group of folks who actually inst- helped install the playground at that location. Remember that, yeah. Those are... Those are t- two very recent things. It's really about the Renaissance and the revival of the space and the recreation of an opportunity for the families to... to and any parting start. advice, not just for your successor at CCA, but for successors that are doing this work more broadly? Well, I'll say two different things. One is that when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Mm. And Did you ever work a day at CCA? Um, I, worked, <laughs> I worked certainly many days at CCA. But, but all in all, I think the value for me was knowing that I was called to do this work, and that was why I went in, into uh, seminary to be able to make that. Well, in this one change. person's opinion, you did the job fabulously the entire time in a way that's an inspiration to our entire city, and you're leaving New Haven a much stronger community 
then you found it in 1988. And, and all I wanted to do, Paul, was to be a good and faithful servant, period. Job well done. Thank what you. are you doing next? Uh, I'm going to go back to my office and see if I can clean up my desk. No, I mean after Friday. Oh, uh, I don't know exactly, but I've joked with the staff. Um, my 94-year-old mother is living with me, and it's a longer story. But the staff gave me a present, and it was a long bib that said I was going to sit on my deck and drool. Okay. I won't be doing that now. I'll be doing that <laughs> in the summer. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I, it I has am... been an honor and a privilege to watch all the great work you've done all this year and to know you. And I know the entire city feels the same way. You are leaving as a very much loved figure in our community. And thank you for a job well done. Just a faithful servant. That's all. Thanks to Carrie Droz as well for working the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience. A group I love. A group you love, including a horn player who's not on this recording. Um, <laughs> performing, I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free, from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.